Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. All right, well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Joe Vitelli. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Lisa. It's so good to be here with you today. I'm excited. Good, <laughs> good to have you. Uh, Joe is a friend of mine uh, from RZIM, so I'm excited to uh, have you uh, with us. For those who don't know who you are, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I'm obviously not from the US. <laughs> I'm from England. Um, I, I grew up over there. My dad was a pastor. And so I kind of grew up around the church, and, but then had a real kind of dramatic encounter with God when I was a teenager. And he just radically challenged me, changed my heart and kind of called me to be some kind of missionary. And in my head, I think that meant, you know, go to the other side of the world, which ironically I did, but not the side of the world I thought I'd go to and, um, and to serve him. But, but over the years, I really sensed his call was particularly to, um, to those who were really wrestling with deep, the deep questions of life, questions about the Bible, questions about faith, and um, people who are real thinkers. And to be honest, everyone I meet is a thinker in one way or another, but, but you know, those who are maybe struggling um, with the big questions. And that was definitely part of my own journey. I mean, where I grew up in London was so secular. And so, um, you know, you tell people you're a Christian, they just have a million questions for you. But I'm, I'm really glad that was the culture I grew up in because it meant that I constantly had to be refining and thinking like, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Um, does this even make sense? And um, so I, I went on to study uh, theology at university at a secular university because I just thought, hey, like if this is true, it's going to stand up to the hard challenges and the criticism. And I want to learn the Bible from people who really don't believe what it says at all. And um, and it was definitely hard at times. So I'm really glad that was the process for me. Um, because even though it sort of took me apart in certain ways, I would say when God put my faith back together in a more robust way, in a stronger way, because I actually engaged with the challenges as opposed to just being like, I don't want to, I don't want to know. Don't, don't, don't ask me those questions. So now I work with RZAM and I mean, the tagline is helping the thinker believe and the believer to think. And that's really just what I'm passionate about, helping people kind of engage, have their questions answered. I believe that um, if God exists, he's big enough for our, for our big questions. It's not claiming I always have the answers. I, I really don't, really don't always have the answers, but I enjoy exploring them with people. That's awesome. And uh, you went uh, and got your Ph.D. in Old Testament, something we're going to be uh, <laughs> talking about today. Where did you do PhD work? Yeah, so um, so I was doing my PhD at Oxford and I was doing it on the question of um, kind of like women and beauty in the Old Testament and how women were being presented. And it, for me, it really came out of two things, both um, the fact that um, I I met a lot of women who aren't Christians who would say to me, Joe, I could never become a, a Christian because the Bible is just too sexist. It's misogynistic. God hates me. Um, and, and I hated that people felt that way, but I really wanted to, engage with that question but also part of me was wondering oh is that true you know like it, it is that actually what the bible has to say that hasn't been my experience of it but maybe i just haven't looked hard enough or deep enough so i wanted to wrestle that way and also i was coming across a lot of um feminist biblical scholars who were 
um, looking at certain texts in, in Judaism around the time that Jesus was alive, and which are, are quite critical of women, but they were saying, well, of course, that's what these texts say, because that's what the Old Testament says, and that's where they're getting it from. And, and I sort of took a step back and I was like, whoa, like, it, you know, is that what the Old Testament says? So I really wanted to engage with those questions of particularly how women are being presented in scripture. That's awesome. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Is God sexist is the title. <laughs> just, you know, little question. These you always pick the really easy, small questions on this show. <laughs> I know. So uh, let's dive right in. What for you are some, what were some of the most uh, problematic passages that you had to navigate through, through as looking through the Old Testament as a woman? Yeah, you know what? It's, I mean, how long do you have, right? Like there's there's so much we could say on this question. And um, I, I mean, I, I was working through the Bible with a girl this year, actually, because she was wrestling with the same question. And we started out um, with her just showing me like the post-it notes she had all the way across the Old Testament. And, um, because there are so many things to struggle with, you know, I mean, across the Old Testament, you're going to have stories of rape, polygamy, incest, violence against women, you know, it's all in the text. And um, I met a girl on the university campus last year who wasn't a Christian and her friends had said to her, oh, if you want to find out about Christianity, just go away and read the Bible. And they, But they hadn't really given her any help as to like how you're supposed to do that. So she started in Genesis and she's going through and you know, then she gets to like Lot sleeping with his own daughters or really his daughter sleeping with him. Um, but she's thinking like, oh my gosh, the Bible thinks incest is okay. You know, like what is this book? And so, But I think that's a lot of people's experience. If you just flip through... Um, and you're kind of skimming the surface and reading these texts, you'll find story after story that um, will be really troubling for you. Um, but I think, so for me, that there are so many things you could point to, but I think that the question, the bigger question had to become, okay, there are a lot of troubling things in the Bible, um, but, but why are they here? <laughs> you know, before leaping to conclusions that they're here because God thinks it's a good idea, which is clearly how this girl called Katie was understanding the Bible, asking that bigger question of why are these stories included in the first place and and actually could it be that they're not there to commend the behavior but actually to condemn it in the strongest possible terms and could it be that the bible is intended to be um kind of a, a story that depicts both the highs but also like the extreme lows of human nature and a lot of those extreme lows involve the way that women have been treated throughout history so because of that framework once i came to understand what the bible was trying to do and why these stories were there, it, that removes some of the ones that I found hard. So for me, the hardest ones, I used to find really difficult, a lot of the narratives, but I don't find those to be the hardest anymore. Um, even though I have moments, I don't know if you're like me, when you look at the TV screen and you're watching something and a character's about to make like a terrible decision and you're yelling at the screen, like, don't do it. So I have a lot of those moments when I'm reading the stories like Sarah and Abraham and then Sarah's like, suggesting to Abraham that he should take Hagar as his concubine. I'm like, Sarah, don't do it. This is going to go so badly. But I kind of get why those stories are there now. But for me, therefore, the harder things are some of the legal codes, right? Because when it comes to the narratives of the Old Testament, you can say, well, these are here as examples of people behaving badly to show how messed up the world is, how much we need saving. Um, But what about the legal codes? Because the legal codes are if they're laws given by God, then how do you make sense of the fact that some of those laws are really hard um, to get to grips with? And you can't just say, well, it's people behaving badly, unless you're going to write off the codes and say, well, they're just written by people. But that's not actually my conviction. And so trying to navigate some of those. And um, I guess I guess part of the struggle there is, well, this is people's assumption, right? If if God is um, perfect and eternal, then whenever he gives laws, those laws must also be perfect and eternal. Um, and and I think for me a long time, that's, that was my assumption when it came to reading that genre of the Bible, um, that that must be true. Um, but then I think part of, part of learning for me has been coming to understand what is the function of these legal codes and coming to understand actually they're really intended for a particular time, a particular place in history, and um, they're kind of like um, case laws or provisional laws. You know, like um, like if a teenager does something stupid and your parents really don't want you to do it, and so they're like, "Hey, well, I don't want you to go out, but if you're going to go out, at least be home by midnight." Or I don't want you to get that nose piercing, but if you're going to get it, at least take it out when grandma comes to say stay. It's basically like I don't really want you to do these things, but I know what you're like. I know you're going to do them. So 
let's put some things in place to manage human mess like as far as possible and um, and then when you look at ancient israel like man but they are in a mess like they're in a, they're in a huge mess and so some of the legal codes you read are dealing with really tricky messy situations that god is trying to i would say limit the damage as far as possible and so let me give you one example i find really hard of these texts it's deuteronomy 21 verse 10 and it says when you go to war against your enemies and the lord your god delivers them into your hands and you take captives if you notice among the captives are beautiful women and you're attracted to her you may take her as your wife um, and it's said, and it goes on to say, after she's lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, you may then go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. If you're not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. You know, I think that's that's the kind of text that you're, you're just reading through the Old Testament and you're like, whoa, like there, there are so many problems there. There's so much that it just makes you feel really uncomfortable. Um, but then when you start to kind of unpick a legal code like that, um, it, it begins, it, I, I still would say it still never sits quite easily with me, but there are, there are a lot of things that, that begin to make sense in the context of the culture you're reading. So, for example, um, we know God's heart and desire is that there would be no more war and that souls would be beaten into plowshares, right? But nevertheless, Israel is in a situation where there is war sometimes. People come against you or people are doing such horrendous things to their own people that sometimes you have to go against them. So in that kind of scenario, what do you do in a situation where either you have to kill everybody or take captives to prevent more war from happening? It's neither of those are good options, but you're managing a disastrous mess. And so then I think this verse is really about in that situation that no one wants to be in anyway, how do we then treat female prisoners of war? And then suddenly you're reading the text and you're like, okay, this is this is hard to get, but what is it saying? Okay, firstly, it's saying rape isn't okay, right? It's saying you can't just rape anybody you want. You can't treat a woman as spoils of war. Instead, you have to give her a month, both to make sure you're not acting on short-term lust in the moment, but also to allow her time to grieve her former life, to give her you know, space to deal with everything that's just been going on for her. And then you can um, move into a relationship with her, but only if you marry her. You can't take her as a sexual slave. Um, you have to honor her and bring her into the Israelite community as a full family member. And then if the marriage doesn't work out, um, then you also have to continue to treat her as a wife. And, um, and in that case, that might mean divorce. And Jesus says that was allowed because people's hearts were hardened, <laughs> because that was ever God's vision from the beginning. Um, but, but you can't treat her as a slave. You can't just sell her on. So it's, it's still a challenging text because the situation is foreign to us. It's, it's a horrible, messy situation. But, but within that, I can start to see the threads of, okay, this is how in a really broken, horrible, bloody context where women are really vulnerable in the ancient world, God is intending for women to, um, to be protected and honored and given as much dignity as possible in a nightmarish situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I think it's hard for people to conceptualize because it's like, why would God even, there are so many things that, you know, it's like, well, I would suggest this and not this. And it's, um, nobody's ever going to be pleased with the suggestions yeah. of the text. I mean, we have that same thing when we come to talk about slavery in the Old Testament yeah. and why did God make provisions for slaves? Why not tell him to eradicate slavery altogether? tell them to eradicate slavery altogether. So, you know, you see that for women and for minorities, it's just hard yeah. um, when looking at those codes. Yeah, it is hard. And it's hard because we're, um, we're so far removed from the culture as well. And so it's like you're trying to wade through so much to understand the cultural context when you're just not there. And so, you know, you're sitting there thinking, okay, I hate the way this has gone. And then you take a step back and you're like, well, how would I do it differently if I was in charge, if I was making the rules? And then suddenly it gets really, really hard either to think, okay, how you would do it differently or to even quite understand what's going on. And so when it, when it comes to your testament, I often think of it as you're basically entering into like a wildly different world. It's just so different to us. And, and, and so my level of expectation for how much I should expect to be able to understand and justify it's just a different level and um, to something that I would see in the 21st century today I think it's partly having the sort of humility not to do the chronological snobbery thing where we're like judging really hard a 3,000 year old culture that we don't get or quite understand and um, so it's always a 
a wrestle. But but when I think about it, and when I think about the cultural challenge, I think about why well, there are over like 30,000 verses in the Bible, I'm probably going to find some of them hard to understand. I actually find it encouraging, not that you can say everything, but how much you can say when you'll take the time to dig in. And I think that's what the study has kind of taught me because it used to be, I'd be so scared coming to texts like this. So I just feel like um, it's going to, and um, there's going to be nothing good to say. God is going to be shown to be awful. But if even in a text like this, you can see the heart behind it, even if you don't quite get it. Um, it gives me great hope for, for the heart of God across the rest of it in the texts that aren't so difficult and, and that, are, that are clearer for us to understand. So I think I see the trajectory, even if the details sometimes are difficult. Yeah. And then you see like the next question I have for you, how does God show his care for women in the Old Testament? You see him kind of amending his own law when it comes to the uh, daughters. of I can't think of the name, but um, when they they didn't he didn't have a a male descendant. So the daughters. Yeah. And kind of and then he was like, we'll kind of amend that law. Mm -hmm. So you see, you know, God showing grace even in the laws or provisions for women, even the laws that seem harsh uh, for them. So what are the texts that show God's care for women throughout the Old Testament? So, so good. And um, and it's a good question to ask because I think you can get really fixated on the opposite as well. It's nice to know there's both, you know, there are both things going on. There are hard texts and there are encouraging ones as well. And um, I've got to be honest, I'm I'm always just so encouraged where the Bible starts, even if we get ourselves into a horrible mess after that. I think it's so important to understand God's vision for women um, that, that, that sets the whole thing up. And I remember um, a couple of years ago listening to BBC Radio One, they had this discussion called the Misogynist Book Club, in which every week they would they would discuss a different book in history they considered to have been particularly oppressive towards women and Number two was Fifty Shades of Grey. Probably not a surprise there, but um, it was the Bible that beat out Fifty Shades of Grey to be considered the most oppressive book in history towards women. And what really interested me was the discussion started Genesis 2, and it totally skipped over Genesis 1 and that radical declaration that male and female are both made in the image of God. And I think that tells us something really important, not just about men and women, but it also tells us something really important about God, <laughs> right? If women are made in his image, that undercuts a lot of assumptions people might make about the maleness of God or the character of God or the heart of God. And um, and I just think those words are so radical. They're, they're so, they stand out among any other kind of ancient statements made about genders. I mean, people think of Plato and Greek culture as being super advanced, but Plato says it's only males who are created directly by gods and given souls. And um, if you're a cowardly man, then you'll be reborn as a woman. That's just one example of the kind of stuff floating around out there. And then you have this amazing statement setting men and women up as equals right from the beginning. And um, and so I, I find it ironic that often I'll meet, I'll meet a lot of women, a lot of feminists who say um, the Bible is just too sexist for them. And yet part of me just wants to say, oh, but they're, they're like, the very equality that you long for is, you know, is first established by the God that you're rejecting or seeing as the root of your oppression. Like that, that's his actual heart in this. And, and that's, that's a grounding for you to stand on, to make that, that claim from. Um, but, but it's not just how God acts in the beginning, but the way he continues to show care, even when men are behaving really badly, which, spoiler alert, happens a lot in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, but for example, like I mentioned Abraham and Sarah and um, Abraham drives me crazy at times. Like I get, I get mad because he, um, you know, twice he asks Sarah to pretend to be his sister so that when they're in the land of like a powerful ruler, they won't kill Abraham to take his wife. The irony being that when he asks her to do that, he basically sets her up to be taken because now she's seen as available. So of course this guy is going to come along and take her. So he basically saves his own skin by putting her in an unbelievably vulnerable position vulnerable position and and what it basically shows is that when God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed Abraham took that as a promise just for him he didn't see Sarah as being a part of that even though she was his wife and um you think she'd be involved right he just discounts her and he sees her as dispensable and yet God so clearly doesn't God doesn't see Sarah as just like a random piece like a, a, a replaceable woman as anyone would do, but he intervenes dramatically to rescue her. And then again, when Abraham and Sarah both treat Hagar really badly, and Hagar is in this super vulnerable position. I mean, if you want to talk about like privilege, it doesn't get more underprivileged than Hagar. She's female, she's a slave, she's a foreigner, she's the second 
wife or mistress of a married man and she's she's pregnant she's in a terrible situation she's in the desert she's dying and there's this amazing line where it just says that and basically um god sends like a divine messenger to her to encounter her and she says um she called uh, she says i've now seen the one who sees me and that's how she talks about god is a god who sees her who sees her in her despair in her hurt in her pain and um and i just find it amazing that that's you know, that's a context where hardly anyone gets visited by divine messengers. And of all people, it's Hagar. And she's the only person in the Old Testament who gives a name to God. And named, you know, naming someone implies such intimacy and value. And she has that privilege. So you have Hagar, who names God, the only one in the Bible. And you have Sarah, who God himself names. He gives gives a name to her. So in different ways, God honors these women, even when Abraham has completely messed them around. Um and uh, that that gives me hope and I think we see that um you know time and again but I even I even just think I guess the final thing to say here would just be I think God shows his care even in the different women that he includes in the bible you know given how patriarchal the culture is at the time given how oppressive and challenging it is the fact that women aren't just presented in the old testament as victims who need protecting but actually they're heroes they they are agents of change and power and they're amazing and they're fierce and um that says so much to me about god's god's value and his place for women like you know like hebrew midwives who have the courage to save lives even at the risk of their own or like proverbs 31 and that impossible woman that no one else can ever live up to but you know, she's praised for her entrepreneurial spirit and her financial savvy or women who bring about justice when it has been overlooked. Women who are presented as wise, even though their husbands are fools, like Abigail, um, or women who have the spiritual authority to actually challenge kings and to speak on behalf of God, female prophets throughout the Old Testament. And it blows my mind. Like, you know, we think of the first female justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. Like in 1981, that was a big deal, right? Then you go back 3,000 years and you have Deborah, the first prophet, <laughs> who led the whole of Israel 3,000 years earlier. And she, you know, both into military victory and 40 years of peace. So there are some remarkable women in the Bible. I think the fact they're there says a lot about God's heart for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, when we think about the Old Testament and we think about like the Me Too movement and what's going on, uh and sexual violence why is there so much rape imagery you think in scripture and is it problematic for women to read that are victims of sexual violence and lisa that's such a good question and um and i have to be honest with you that um so there's a there's a um a guy called Dan Barker. I don't know if you know him. He's he's an atheist. He's written the book and um, God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction, and um, based off of Rich Dawkins' quote about the God of the Old Testament. But he um he released an article. I think it was a couple of years ago now, but with his top ten worst Bible verses, and and two of them were precisely these ones: the prophets talking basically in um in the imagery and the language of sexual violence. And I don't agree with Dan Barker on much, but I did agree with him that if I had to write a list of the verses I find hardest to deal with in the Bible, right at the top for me would be this language. And um, and personally, it's been one I've really struggled with and um, to make sense of as I'm engaging with scripture, like why this way? Why speak of it this way? And there are certain, um, and when we're talking about these texts, we're basically talking about texts like in Jeremiah 13 or Isaiah 3, parts of Ezekiel, Hosea, Basically, it's prophets who they use this language of a marriage metaphor. Um, and and in some ways, a marriage metaphor is amazing to describe God's relationship with his people because it shows it's not just like a master and slave situation. It's not like a God who just wants to boss people around. It's about intimacy and commitment and faithfulness. But the problem is when you use an image like that and then um, and then suddenly you're talking about coming judgment of the people who've turned away and they've been unfaithful and, and the, the category that they're spoken of is people who have been unfaithful to God, to their, their husband. And so then when judgment comes and, and suddenly you get this really uncomfortable mixing of metaphors because you have God saying basically you turn away to these people, you've made them your lovers in, in one sense, but they that's not someone you can trust in. They're going to be violent towards you. And um, it's going to really damage you. Your very lovers are going to be, become the people that that are violent to you. But also God's saying, because you've been unfaithful to me, and this is the bit I find hardest, basically I'm going to let it happen. I'm always going to bring it to light. I'm going to expose this for what it is. And that language of exposure, of sexual exposure, 
I think is really, really troubling. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I still feel like there are things that can be said. It's not, it's not a complete answer. I think some of the things I, I think we really need to say when it comes to these texts, the firstly that actually I think when it comes to rape, um, the Bible is actually really clear and explicit in its condemnation of rape. And we can't confuse metaphors used in judgment by prophets as legal codes, which are treated very, very differently in human interactions. I think we need to be totally clear about that. Um, the second thing I think we need to say is that actually the Bible itself is very specific about language. And in those texts that you were referring to, it doesn't actually use the word rape. It talks about violence. It is violence against women in the metaphor representing Israel, um, but not it's, it's not rape. And um, the third thing I want to say there is it's just so hard when you're talking about metaphorical language um, because the temptation is to look to that for your example. But actually, we already know um, how un- unfaithfulness was dealt with in Israel. And actually, it was foreign nations that would treat female prisoners of war by exposing them, not in ancient Israel. We've already talked about a text and, and how you treat female prisoners of war in in Israel. So all those things to say, and yet I still think that will never take away from the fact that the visually horrific and sexually sexual nature of the language is is disturbing. Um, but the more I was kind of praying about it, I'm like, God, why? Like, why this horrible language um, that makes me uncomfortable? And I'm not someone who has been a victim of extreme sexual abuse. So I can't even imagine how traumatizing it must feel to read these texts um, if that has been someone's experience. Um, but then as I was really wrestling with that, it just came to me, well, actually, isn't that the point of these texts? Like, isn't the point that they're supposed to be deeply shocking and troubling? And actually, if we didn't react sensitively to them, if we weren't concerned by them, it would say something about us that we weren't troubled by the language. And I started to think, well, what are the prophets trying to do when they're using this language? And um, it was Brian Godower, who uh, for the Christian Research Institute was writing about how actually he thinks the biblical prophets intentionally use the genre of horror um, in order to really um, just provoke a strong reaction from their hearers. And then I was trying to think, OK, what's the situation like? They've been saying time and time again, things are really bad. You need to change or disaster is coming your way. The kind of disaster that will mean death and, and destruction from foreign nations like you're trusting them and it's going to blow up in your face and no one is listening and they keep not listening and it goes on and on and on and at, at what point do, do, do you does it become so desperate that you're like how do I convey this to you in a way that's going to shock you so much that you might actually do something about it and so I think it is traumatizing language but I wonder if they're, they're trying to be traumatizing because they think the only thing worse than using this kind of language would be the actual trauma that would come if this is realized in history. The heart behind it, the intention is to shock people out of what they're doing. And, and so, yes, the language is really painful and hard to hear. It's hard for us to read, especially because we're not in that situation anymore. Um, but isn't that the point? And, and, and the heart behind it is actually the intention to say, don't be like this change. I can't bear it if you go this way. And I think that is true um, both for the prophets, but also for God as well. And um, you just like, this is, I mean, we're talking about thousands of years ago, right? So it's, you know, the text seemed kind of distant to us, but it, it really hit home for me in a, in a much deeper way last year um, when I was on the campus of UC Berkeley on International Women's Day. And you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine UC Berkeley on International Women's Day. It was pretty um, wild and um, it's a lot of anger, a lot of pain on campus, a lot of marching, a lot of women out. And in the middle of this kind of hectic scene, um, there was a girl who was standing there in the busiest part of campus and she was wearing just fishnet tights, a short denim skirt. She was topless and she had a paper bag over her head with just like the eyes cut out. And um, you could tell people didn't know how to react to her in this kind of public spectacle. And some people um, would laughed, I guess, out of shock. And um, other people immediately like turned their eyes away and they just kind of hurried on. They didn't want to engage. But then if you got close enough, and um, to look into her eyes, then um, you could see written across the bag, it said, all five of my rapists are getting away with it. And mm. um, it literally was probably the most graphic and heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. Um, it, just the impact of that moment and, and just looking into her eyes and they were just so haunted. Um, and, and, and in that moment, I just did, you know, you sort of pause, you know, like, I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what to do. Um, but then the questions came to my mind, like, 
what would Jesus have to say to her? What would Jesus say in a moment like this? A moment, we're not talking about metaphors of war and a judgment on a nation, but an actual person who's been raped horribly and, and hasn't had justice. And what would Jesus say? And, and you know, in that moment, like, it just really clicked for me that actually if anybody knew what it was like to be, what was behind the paper bag or what it was like to be on the other side of the paper bag, it was actually Jesus. It was actually God um, that, that, in the truest sense, he 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 too was stripped naked and exposed like her. He became a public um, spectacle. He was sexually shamed and naked and exposed and um, wore nothing but shame and had people enact horrendous violence and and torture and and isolation on him. And um and, and it just kind of clicked for me. You know what? Like we wrestle with these texts in the Old Testament, but we also as Christians read scripture as interpreting scripture. And on the one hand, you have this extreme traumatic language in some of the prophets, right? Um, of, of God's concern as to what's going to happen to them when they walk away from him and they abandon relationship with him, a relationship he wants. But what happens when we actually walk away from him or when there are actual victims of sexual abuse standing in front of him? Um, it, there is someone who's who's naked and exposed in that situation, but it's God. Like he's the one who willingly goes there and becomes that victim. And so I wrestle with those texts. I struggle with the language, but in the whole picture of scripture, I say, thank God that there's a God like that who had put himself in that place, who can speak to those victims. Um, and actually that was what, so one of my, I was there with a friend called Madeline and she's had the overwhelming sense of the Holy Spirit saying in that moment out of everybody here on campus, say I identify with her, I'm here for her. And so she actually went and spoke with, with her and shared some of, um, shared a little bit about what I just shared about Jesus. And the girl just began to weep and weep and weep and just threw her arms around her and they just stood her there like holding on to each other in the middle of that campus. And um, and then Madeline asked if she could pray for her and the girl said yes. And they stood there holding hands. No one else is watching being like, what the heck is going on? You know, this is so weird. But 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 that was the moment that I think um, this this woman, she encountered the God who sees her, right? The God who sees her and he knows what it's like to be in that place. So we wrestle with these texts. We find them really hard, but 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 I can, um, even if intellectually I can't quite grasp them, I can grasp them in another way because I see who Christ is and, and the heart and the content of His character and the lengths He would go to to actually restore relationship. When we do keep ignoring Him, we walk away. It's not a complete answer, but that's where I find my hope. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That is very powerful, and I think. That helps when we see passages um, like what Phyllis Tribble talks about, texts of terror. Um, And uh, one of those texts of terror uh, is the Levite and the concubine, which I think is one of the most horrific passages in scripture. And before we even talk about the Levite and the concubine, I think one of the things that I think both of us have challenged people is to be aware of these passages mm-hmm. um, when you're engaging with people. Because I think that as Christians, um, William Lang has this great, great quote where he says, we as Christians say we're people of the book, but we are actually only people of our favorite passages. It's so true. And so when we encounter people who know these texts of terror, we're often blindsided because we're like, oh, that's not in the Bible. And that people aren't aware of the passages you shared earlier in Deuteronomy and the codes that people would have trouble with. And so they haven't wrestled with them. And so when they come in contact with them, um, even though they've been a Christian all their life, when they come to a skeptic, they're not even aware of the challenge. And so the skeptic immediately kind of gets the higher ground because the Christian hasn't wrestled with them. So I would admonish you uh, before we talk about the text of terror to be familiar and maybe I'll compile a list and put online texts that we should be aware of and have wrestled through. Um, So when we encounter skeptics that have these questions, we'll already know ahead of time that these are issues that people are wrestling with. Uh, Lisa, that's so good. And and yeah, I get I get emails from friends who've been Christians their whole life who would be like, oh, something came across this passage here and I don't know what to do and my whole faith is shaken and da-da-da-da-da. And I'd be like, you just came across that passage now? Like you've been, how long, you know, how many decades have you 
been reading the Bible, like why is it? And, and what does that say about our churches and our ministries that we're not preparing young people? Why don't we talk about these passages in a youth group? Why don't we, you know, where does this, there's a lot of complicity in, in the ignorance that we have about the Bible, but I think there's also a lot of fear. I think people are genuinely scared to, to go into these passages because I think they're frightened. If I dig deep, will I discover things about God that I find hard? And it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, right? It's like, what if I peel back the curtain and it was all too good to be true and, and God isn't who I thought he was? And and I get that fear, but but it's from my experience, it's only been by pushing into these things, by trying to go deeper rather than running away from them. That that yes, God God hasn't been shown always to be who I thought he was, kind of like in C.S. Lewis and say about Aslan, like, is he safe? Of course he's not safe, he's not tame, but he is good. And that's been my experience that I see his goodness, even grappling in the hardest things, but you've got to go there. You've got to, you've got to grapple. And I also think it's, it's not just for the sake of everybody else, but it says something about your worship, right? Because what are we, the kind of Christians who are like, God, I I only want to know the easy things about you. I want to keep the relationship superficial. I don't want to dig deep into who you are. And what does that say? It says, well, I don't really want to know you that much because I want to know the easy things, but I don't want to know the hard things about you. And to be in a real relationship with anyone, you've got to be willing to go to the, the challenging places and say, God, help me to see you in this in this situation not just the easy stuff and and I'm grateful for that in the bible that if there's one thing that's not it's not a fairy tale it's not easy it's real and it's raw and um, but that's our lives right so if we can't find god in the bible we're not going to find him in our lives either mm-hmm. that's that's definitely so 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 true and i often think about like our day and time where like Everybody has an Apple. I'm sure we're both using Apple products to do this. <laughs> but um, the updates, the terms and conditions, we all agree and nobody really ever reads. And I think that's how Christianity, we just click. I want to sign up for Christianity, but we never take the time to read everything that's in the book. We just <laughs> sign up just like we do our terms and conditions. So uh, let's talk about a term and condition or something that's <laughs> not noted really. Yeah. Well, it's not a term and condition, but something that's kind of hidden sometimes in the text, these texts of terror that Phyllis Triple um, notes, um, the Levite and the concubine. Uh, how is that story shocking to you? And then how, what should we glean from a story like that? Yeah, so good. And um, um, I mean, what you said was so good. The passage not, not so good, um, and and um, and and the irony is right when we ignore a passage like this, we become complicit in the very thing that goes wrong in this passage of actually not seeing this woman. Um, and um, this this to me, I think you're right. This is one of the most horrendous stories in the Bible. For those of you who don't know it, it's in Judges 19, 20, 20 and um. And really, that there's just a whole array of terrible things that happen in this text. It's it's relentless. And um, you know, first of all, we don't even know her name. She's called the Levite's concubine. We we don't even know who she is. She's that like unheard, right? And then she's so she's basically betrayed by her father, who allows her to be with this guy in the first place. He's not treating her well, and um, she's poorly treated by the Levite, which basically means he's a priest. And um, so should really know better that that double level of, of abusiveness going on. And um, he comes to collect her. They go and stay in a house um, for the night. And then some men come to the house and they're actually threatening the other men in the house. And they're saying, come out, basically, we're going to rape you. And so what do the guys do? Well, they basically decide to save their own skin by throwing out this woman. They throw her outside the door with the concubine. They lock her out. She is raped all night. And then she's dying of her injuries, literally, like, it's it's really graphic, like, up against the door. They don't, they don't let her in. And then, the you know, the, the Levite steps out in the morning, sees her lying there, no concern, basically, just tells her to get up because they're on their way. Like, zero care there. Finds out, oh, she's dead because of what has happened to her. And then, it, uh, t- to my mind, just, just so appalling, his reaction to this is he cuts her body into pieces. And he sends those pieces um, across Israel, at, supposedly as a symbol of, look how horrendous this is that such a thing has happened. But the very act of dismembering her like that is just shows how he's, he hasn't seen her at all. This was He had no concern for her. His concern was never about her. She's not even human to him. 
So this whole thing is appalling. And then the irony of the whole thing, which I think is the point, um, is that because the whole book of Judges has been about, okay, everything is getting worse and worse in Israel. And you keep hearing this phrase because people do what's right in their own eyes. Um, and and so it's a story of everything getting worse and worse and worse. And the story comes at the end, I think is the culmination of this is how bad everything has got. The, the response of the people when they hear about the story is not to question the Levite, you know, to dig into the details of what happened. Why did you throw her outside the door? Why did you cut her body into pieces? Instead, all the blame is shifted to the guys who came and, and raped her. And, and fair enough, there should be a reaction to that. But, but justice is still completely missed in this story and then they go and it turns into a civil war and they're all fighting each other and you know they're saying such a thing as ne- should never be done in Israel which is, is like a code phrase whenever you see that in the Old Testament it means something horrible has happened that's what happened when Tamar was raped the same expression is, is used again so it's, it's meant to signify horror but but, but because they're, they're doing what's right in their own eyes their, their enactment of justice completely misses it and I think that's that's the both the irony and I think the point of this text is that even when humans try to bring about what they call justice in response to what happened, they completely don't get it because they're only seeing what is right in their own eyes. And so they go off and fight with these people and they don't think to question, what was this guy doing? Like, why was he treating her this way in the first place? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's so appalling. Um, but... But essentially what it tells us is she's unseen. Like I think the number of commentaries I've read on this text that talk about like she's almost like a footnote to a bigger story that's going on. She's like seen as often as a minor character. And I think whenever we do that to this story, um, we basically treat her exactly the same way that everyone else treated her. Um, and so on the one hand, it's maybe like one of the absolute worst verses in the Bible, undoubtedly one of the worst verses in the Bible. But on the other hand, um, I am so thankful it's there. Like, I couldn't be more thankful that this story is in the Bible. People say, what is it doing there? I would say it's there because she goes unseen, right? Like, the Levite doesn't see her. Her father doesn't see her. The men don't see her. Nobody sees her. Um, But because the story is in Scripture and has been there for thousands of years, that means that, that it's God's way of saying, I think, I see her. I see her and I won't allow her story to go unheard. I'm putting it in here so that for generation after generation, people have to read this text and engage with the horror of what happens when we do what is right in our own eyes and when we don't see women. And so I think particularly in the cultural moment that we're in now, of not just me too, but church too, and having a story in the text about a priest who treats a woman so badly and then people come along and they don't act justly and they don't deal with the problem. They run away and try and do justice, but they don't get to the heart of it. And therefore they don't see her either. That text of terror is really important because we are in a world where terror happens all around us and people are terrorized. Um, and and this story is right in our faces to say, don't do what they did. Don't be that way. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. Um, just to link it all up, it reminds me of when um, Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7 and there's a woman who's been branded by her town as a sinner, whatever that means, whether they consider her a prostitute, whether she um, has been sleeping with other people. And, you know, the irony being where all the men who have, have caused her to sin, no one's branded them, no one's labeled them. But anyway, she gate crashes the dinner party. Everyone's shocked in a pool that she's there. She's crying all over Jesus' feet, making this big scene. And, and Simon the Pharisee is standing there, not just judging her, but judging Jesus because he's interacting with her, because he's letting her weep all over him and kiss his feet and couldn't be more intimate in this public way with a woman. Everyone's like, oh, don't touch her. And then Jesus asks the most amazing question to Simon the Pharisee. He turns around and says to him, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? And I think that is the question that Judges 19 and 20 is asking us. Do you, do you see this woman? I think that's the question that, you know, God, God sees Hagar we don't see the woman. Jesus is asking again in the New Testament, do you see this woman? I think it's the same question that he's asking us in our culture today. Do you see this woman? And I think the Bible couldn't be clearer with these flashpoints that we may not see, but God sees. And you better bet he cares. And what are we going to do about it? Yes, I think that's powerful. Um, and I think it also, when we point to these texts, it also shows us like what, relativity pushed to the max does to culture. Right. Um, as apologists and those who are proponents of truth, having being an absolute and it's not actually being something that you can determine yourself. 
when everybody has the determination of what is right in their own eyes, these are types of results that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've actually used this text (laughs) in in an apologetic way because it, it, it helps us to know the importance of not having truth be Mm -hmm. self-determined. So that is another, I think, usefulness of that, that passage. Right. And it's, um, it's so the struggle we're in culturally now, isn't it? Because, you know, that, that day on International Women's Day, you know, I was walking around this room and honestly, I loved UC Berkeley because the students there, I've never met students who were more passionate about justice. You know, they felt this conviction. They they want, really wanted to make the world better and you can't help but admire that kind of desire and that enthusiasm. But then there was, there's also, they were also the most relativist students I'd ever met. You know, they really, like most of them I spoke to didn't believe in any kind of objective morality. And it just led to this real confusion over what are you fighting for? And basically the question I was asking is that, you know, if you don't believe there's such a thing as right and wrong, then why are you so committed to putting to right the world's wrongs? Like, how do how do we align these things, right? Like, we, we feel that something's not right, but is it, if that's just a matter of personal preference, we don't have anything to stand on. And it's, you know, the irony here is, like, I used to struggle so much with the judgment of God, particularly in the Old Testament. It used to be like a real thing for me, you know, because we live in a culture where love is affirmation. Love, if you love somebody, you just forgive them. You don't judge. And um, that's, that's, you know, politically incorrect. That's wrong. And I, I struggle with why would God be a God who, of, who judges? And, and And it was actually when one of my closest friends was raped that, that, that my thinking radically shifted because it was so horrendous. And you know, seeing what it did to her, seeing the way she began to hate her body and punish herself by not eating, seeing the way she blamed herself for something she wasn't to blame for, seeing the way that she would just go from broken relationship to broken relationship, she just couldn't cope with intimacy anymore. And you know, I was so angry that that this guy did that and he got away with it and and just felt this like longing for justice. And and that was when it clicked for me, like if it bothers me this much, if I'm that angry when someone I love is violated and wronged, then how much more angry would a God who loves even more than I could possibly imagine be for the ways that we wrong and abuse and violate each other. And actually realize, okay, love and judgment, you know, we think, oh, bad Old Testament God, good loving Jesus, but no, like love and justice throw flow all the way through the Old and New Testament. I'm like, thank goodness that love and justice go hand in hand with God. He says, I love you so much. I'm not just going to sweep it under the carpet. I'm not going to be like, no big deal. Pat on the head. They're there. Just don't do it. He's like, I care. Like, I fiercely care for the ways that you wrong and abuse each other. And I'm committed to doing something about it. And to be able to say to a woman who has written across her forehead, all five of my rapists are getting away with it, that even though human justice failed, that divine justice will not fail her because there's a God who's committed to that. He's utterly committed. And the irony is, right, like, you know, I used to think the hardest question to answer was why doesn't God just forgive everybody? I think actually it's much harder to answer why he does. But for the victim, what hope there is to be able to say um, that God's justice is a justice you can hold on to. Um, that that there will be justice, and um, in our world right now, I don't actually know a more hopeful message um, than, than that one—a God of justice and love. And so that's why, as, as much as I struggle sometimes with the Old Testament, the way I see justice enacted, that doesn't always make sense to me in my framework in the culture that I'm seeing it through. I'm still so glad. I'm so glad that it's there. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that it. I think everything you shared was. I fully agree with <laughs> because love and justice do have to work together. As people are wrestling through these passages, what books would you recommend uh, for them to to read? Oh, great question. And um, there, there's so much to suggest. I think if you're starting out uh, with these texts, then one book I found really helpful is by um, a Christian philosopher called Paul Copan. And he's written a book called Is God a Moral Monster? And um and it's really dealing with the kind of struggles of the character of God in the Old Testament, everything from genocide to slavery, women, um, and some of the really weird laws that just don't make a lot of sense to us. And um, a lot of those kind of things. Now, of course, one book cannot possibly begin to deal with the extent of all of that. But I think it's a helpful way in um, to engaging with some of those hard texts, especially for a Christian who has who shied away from them. Read them with that book with you, because then when you're like, what on earth do I do with this text? 
um, you can you can at least begin to unpack it a bit. That one's helpful. The other one that I think is the best book I've read on um, God's vision for women and for sexuality in the Bible is is huge. So like ask for it for Christmas if you really care about this issue. Like it's an enormous book and it's a little bit expensive, but um, it's called. Um, kind of hilarious name but I love it it's called Flame of Yahweh Sexuality in the Old Testament and um, it's just a really really deep dive into the text into the kind of overarching vision of of, um, the status of women in the Old Testament what do we do with these hard texts what is God's vision for them but it's very robust and it's a book that I think the guy looking at the bibliography he's read everything else in the world so it means you don't have to because you've got got him and his bibliography Um, but, but I just thought it was a really helpful i didn't agree with absolutely everything but i thought it was a really helpful treatment of some of these difficult texts that's helpful that's helpful how can people get in contact with you on social media yeah um so oh gosh that's such a great question so um i'm on uh twitter and the reason i'm checking this is like this is hilariously how untechnological i am that i don't even know my own twitter handle so let's just go and look for that okay great so i'm on twitter at joanna underscore vitali so you can find me there i'm also on instagram and but also if you have questions coming out of what we've spoken about today that are maybe more personal because i know a lot of this is sensitive um feel free to email me as well and you can reach me at just joe.vitali at rzim.org and we're really happy to to talk further about some of this stuff because i know social media isn't always the best place (laughs) conversations well thank you joe this has been a very rich conversation yeah so good to talk to you lisa and um yeah look forward to seeing you soon and thanks to everyone who's who's joined in thank you so much for listening to another episode of the jew3 project podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode you can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com you can subscribe on itunes stitcher Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.